0: Getting back to where we are today, Matthew chapter nine, um, some of the things that people did yesterday is they shared a testimony and they shared a testimony of how, well, how they came to know Jesus and every testimony. If you're ever asked to share your testimony, just so you know, these are the basic elements of a testimony. You were dead in your sin. Jesus met you and you received his invitation and now you're alive in Christ. Those are the essentials for a Christian testimony, those three points. Now, the beauty of a testimony is no two testimonies are identical. Those points should be identical in the sense that those points happened. But the part that it starts to have more richness and detail is how the Lord met you, who you were before you met the Lord, what he's doing in your life now. And that's when when you ask any two people, any two Christians... You're going to ask their testimony. There may be some similarities, but eventually you'll see some unique differences. And it's just how God met them. And I just love hearing testimonies because I'm going to learn about the other person, the person who's sharing their testimony. My wife will ask this question of somebody when she meets them. For her, if she wants to get to know somebody really well, the question she will ask is, well, how did you meet Jesus? And by answering that question, my wife can learn a lot about a person. Well, today it's a real treat because we're in the Gospel of Matthew And we're going to see a testimony today. But this is the great thing. This testimony is the testimony of the gospel writer, Matthew. Matthew is going to share his story about how he met Jesus. And he we're going to get to see the kind of people that Jesus calls. I mean, we look at this and we're like, gospel writer, like you must have like some high level of holiness to be picked by God to write one of the gospels. Like you must be an exceptional believer. Well, you are going to be shocked this morning because Matthew is going to tell his testimony. To who? To anyone that would read these words. And so it's us this morning. So when we read about his testimony, everybody's just going to cheer and clap and go, Matthew is saved and is following Jesus. No, no. Unfortunately, there'll be some people that, some people are not happy when people become Christians. And we're going to see that as well in today's story. So the title of today's message is Jesus, a friend of sinners. We're going to be in Matthew 9, verse 9. Let's pray. Papa, we come before you and we thank you so much that you have called us here. We thank you for being able to worship you. We thank you that you have given us um, such wonderful things as music and our voices. And we thank you that you've provided a beautiful um, uh, place that we can come. Lord, that when it rains, the roof doesn't leak. And we thank you that the sun is out. And God, we thank you that you are so good to us above and beyond anything we could even ask or think. As we look at your your word this morning, I pray that we would be able to relate to what Matthew is saying, that we would be able to remember our testimony and your goodness in our life. And Lord, I pray this for those that aren't believers that might be listening. I pray that they would consider you and see your heart towards people. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's jump into it. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Well, there you go. I mean, this is you look at that verse and we can just kind of end the message there, can't we? There's Matthew. he It's, it's around April. It's getting down to the deadline. He's got to get his taxes done. So he goes to the tax office and he's sitting there trying to get the largest refund he can for his tax return, right? Because it says Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. Except that's not what's happening here because Matthew is not the one having his taxes done. Matthew is the collector of the taxes. Oh, he's like the IRS agent? Yeah, kind of. Or maybe another way to look at it is he's like a customs agent. And so there he is at his job. He's at his job and it's a job that people, you know, there's certain people who have jobs that you just don't like that person's job. Like it's not one of those where you're like, oh, I'm just going to go there. I mean, I would imagine that Matthew, he's working at this crossroads. The city, we've learned about this over the last couple of weeks. Jesus is now in Capernaum. So Jesus is in Capernaum at a crossroads. A lot of trade routes are going north and to the east and the west around the Sea of Galilee. And there's Matthew's tax office. And as Matthew's there, he was a person that, I can tell you this, when somebody had a free, you know, free lunch or something, they're like, you know what, I'm just going to go hang out with that tax collector over at his booth. Said nobody, said no one. No one was going to go hang out at the tax booth because they had time to kill. Because people didn't like the fact that they had to pay taxes, not a huge change in our day and age either, right? But people didn't like the tax collector either. And so Matthew had this unenviable job where he would be taking money from his own Jewish people for the Roman government. Now, there's some pictures that have paintings that have been painted that kind of give an impression of it. This is just an interpretation. This is Giovanni Panini. This is called the the, the painting is called The Calling of St. Matthew. It's painted in 1752. And you can always tell Jesus because Jesus has the halo around his head. It's glowing right there. And he's pointing over in this direction. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, you. And Matthew is right here with his hand on this book, a ledger of some sort. And he's going, me? And then there's people all around. And I mean, of course, the architecture and all of that. It, it's, I wouldn't say that this would be accurate to that, that time period. However, I think it gives the impression like there's a Roman soldier back there. And it was an area of activity and hustle and bustle. And people would come and go And it's kind of like the tax collector would set up his office or his booth where there was a bottleneck where people had to go through. Oh, I've got, I'm carrying all of my stuff. We're taking this whole, you know, load of goods through. Is there any other way I can get around? It's like, no, you've got to go through this. Oh, I'm going to have to go past the tax collector. Yes, you are. And if you didn't pay the taxes, then the tax collector could call upon the Roman soldiers to go deal with you. So, Do you realize and do you see why Matthew was not a liked person? He was taking money from his people and he was a betrayer because he was in cahoots with the Roman government. Um, Here's a more modern picture, a still image from a, a, a film about this story. And I think we have a picture of Matthew sitting at his tax collector booth. He doesn't look like a very happy man as he sits there. And he's got his ways to uh, uh, do some accounting and he's got his handout and he's got a ledger and ways to write and coins. And it's this handout like, give me money. No, it's if you don't give me what I'm supposed to get, I'm going to make sure it gets taken from you. Matthew was that guy. I don't know what your impression is of like these gospel writers or the disciples where you kind of look and go, these are just these idealized, amazing people who this was Matthew. The guy who everyone hated. You know, these um, stories as you read them, you may go, well, is his name Matthew? Because I read in some it's it's like it's spelled, it looks like Levi, like the genes, or the Jews may pronounce it Levi. But is it Matthew or is it Levi? Like which one is it? Like what is his name? Here's the answer. They're both his name. Matthew is his Greek name, and as he'd be interacting with the Roman soldiers who spoke Greek, I'm sure they would call him Matthew. But to the Jews, they would call him Levi or Levi. And so they're both his name. Um, We see that with other people as well. Peter, sometimes he's called in the Bible Simon. Same kind of thing. Two different languages. It's the same name. It's the same person we're talking about. Um, So we look at this and Matthew's going to put a description of himself in here. Now, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 through 4. You'll see this on your screen. The name of the 12 disciples are these first Simon, who is called Peter. There you go. There you see the dual name thing. Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay. So interesting thing. When we look at a list of names, you kind of go, well, there's a list of names. Some of them have attachments to family, son of this brother of that. Okay, great. But only one of them in here has a job description. And if you look at it, in verse number three, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. It's interesting because who's the writer of this gospel? It's right there on the top. Matthew. Matthew was writing about the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, those who were following after Jesus And he could have put any description that he wanted to. And you think about it. I don't believe the Holy Spirit would have let Matthew just write whatever at all. But go with me on this one. What if Matthew was like, you know what? I'm going to put down and Matthew, the nicest disciple and James and the son of, as he's writing, right? He could kind of like sweeten it a little bit, make himself look better than he is. Or how about this? What if he just said, you know what? I'm not going to put the tax collector. I'm just going to take out the tax collector Maybe people will forget who I used to be. Maybe I can just kind of erase my past. And here's the thing about it. I'm so thankful that Matthew doesn't try to sanitize his past. What you sometimes see is you'll see a person that they come to know Christ and then it's this idea of like, well, who, you, who were you before you knew Christ? And remember the three points of a testimony. I was dead in my trespass and sin. Jesus met me and I received him and now I'm alive in Christ. Christ. Well, sometimes if we've walked with the Lord for a while, or maybe if we, you know, we're just, we just been a Christian for a while, we start to forget the before we were a Christian. And in fact, we don't even bring it up anymore. And I understand there's a balance here. You don't live in your past. Okay. You don't live in the past and, and you're not a slave to your past. I get that. But I also know this, the Bible doesn't, and God in his word doesn't call us to be, uh, have amnesia about our past either. Why? Because if you did, you do the same thing all over again. You should remember your past enough that you don't repeat the mistakes of your past. And so I would encourage you, because sometimes people in their testimony, a Christian in their testimony, they'll do this. Oh, I was so bad. You don't even know. Ask me how bad I was. Well, no, I don't even want to hear it now because this testimony seems to be all about you and not much about Jesus. It seems to be about how bad you were and you and I and me and my and A testimony, the key person in a testimony is not you, it's Jesus. So how about you tell me about how Jesus met you? I get it. You weren't a great person. Okay. So I think in the balance between those two, not mentioning your past at all, or overdoing it and boasting about what a bad person you were, I think someplace in there is the sweet spot. The balance at which you go, I was dead in my trespass and sin, and here's some details of how I was, and I was lost, and Jesus found me. And I love it about Matthew. Matthew does not try to erase his past because he wants people to understand that even Jesus, this amazing Jesus, he can save a guy even like Matthew, a tax collector. Now, what is so bad about a tax collector? They, they're like this horrible person. They, they ran a tax office on behalf of the Roman government. The Roman government were the occupiers in Israel at the time there. And so for Matthew, for the Jews, here's what it looked like. For the the Romans, they looked at Matthew and they're just like, ah, he's just another Jew. He's just another Jew that's going to give us money. And he's just another person. We don't really care much about him. The Jews, they're like, he is a turncoat, traitor. That guy's a weasel. We hate him. He's one of us and he's working for the enemy. We hate him. And so not only this, but tax collectors were known because they had to receive the money for the Roman government, what would they do on it? Well, they would receive a little bit more for themselves. Sometimes it'd be like, well, how much is that? Well, how do I feel today? It's not like there was a list and a sign so you would know exactly how much it is. It was almost like, how do I feel today? How light is my purse? My purse is a little light. I think I'm going to take a little bit more from you. We've got to pay the Roman government and then I've got to make a living. Yeah, there's a difference between making a living and making a killing. Tax collectors were known to make a killing. Why? Because they were known to be rich. Rich off the backs of their own people. And the other Jews hated them. You know, um, God has something to say about people who cheat others. Because sometimes they would have scales or they would weigh out, you know, gold or other payments and things like that on scales. Well, what happens if like the tax collector had a rigged scale, if you will, a scale that didn't balance out correctly or look like it did. But when you waited, it would cheat the person. God knows every time someone has cheated and God has thoughts about that. Proverbs 20, verse 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. So every single time that Matthew cheated somebody, God knew about it. And every time you and I have ever cheated anybody, God knows about it. You may have fooled everyone else, but God knows. And God's not a vague about how he feels about it. They're an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. Oh, well, I'll do this and this will be, should be about what I get back. And well, maybe I can get a little bit more from that. They won't ever know. God knows. God knows. And God weighs in on how he feels about this. The people, the Jews felt that tax collectors, the general feeling was tax collectors were beyond the reach of God's grace and God's mercy. Like they were so far gone. They had done so much bad in their life. They were persistently wicked and evil. They were deceptive and wrong. And so they are so bad that God's grace and God's mercy can't even reach them. That was the th- thinking. Um, since they were Jews, they would go to the temple and worship God and make sacrifices and all of that. But there were different levels that you could get as far as how close you can get to the temple. There was a large outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles, the court of the non-Jews. So if you weren't a Jew, that's the furthest you could go. And then there was a sign. And then you can, if you were able to get past that sign, you could go to the court of the women. And then there was the court of the men. And then it became a little bit more exclusive as you went further in. Well, Matthew would have been able to, if he wasn't a tax collector, he could have been able to go all the way into the court of the men. He could have gotten in that far. However, because he was a tax collector, even though he was a Jew, he couldn't get past the court of the Gentiles. Wait, they considered him like a non-Jew? Yeah. And remember I told you there was a sign that he had to get past? This is what the sign said. I'm going to read it to you. It said, no foreigner is to go beyond the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. If you're not a Jew and you walk past this open door with this warning sign and and they found, archaeologists have found these signs and the wording that was on there. They were around the temple. If you go past it, your life will be taken and it's going to be your fault. Matthew the Jew was not able to go past the court of the non-Jews. He was that much of an outcast with his own society. They hated him. You know, Jesus came and met Matthew in this place. He met them, met him in this moment. And I want to ask you this. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, then that means that Jesus called you. This story here, it's very important to get this order right. I mean, we sang a song during worship. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? And that's true. For the Christian, they have decided to follow Jesus. They made a choice. But let's not get this confused. That decision came second. The first thing that had to happen is that God had to call you through Jesus. If Jesus never called you, you couldn't make a decision for him. There is an order. Jesus calls and then a person either accepts and responds or rejects and denies. But let's not get it confused. God uses his son, Jesus, to call people first. And we see this here. Jesus went to Matthew. Matthew didn't go to Jesus. Matthew, Jesus went to Matthew's place of work and Jesus went there, not because he was there to pay any taxes. Jesus went there and I'm sure Matthew was just like, why is this guy walking up to me? And as Jesus walks up for Matthew to recognize, this must be the guy that has been doing the miracles right here in this town. And the one that was over and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and, and healed those two demon possessed guys. And I've heard the stories. Why is he walking towards me? And Jesus walks up to Matthew. Jesus makes the invitation and says, follow me. Christian, do you remember the call of Jesus in your life? Do you remember it? Matthew remembers it. He wrote it down. We're reading it right now. Do you remember, if you're a Christian, do you remember when it happened to you? Do you remember about how old you were? Maybe you even remember the specific date it happened. Do you remember where you were when Jesus called you? Matthew does. He was at work. When you heard Jesus' voice calling your name and saying, it's time, follow me. When it happened, where it happened, Here's a really important one, Christian. Do you remember who you were when Jesus called you? Maybe that's the most important of those questions. Do you remember who you were when Jesus called you? Matthew remembers who he was, and Matthew will tell people I was a tax collector. I think sometimes we want to we'll go back to that phrase, sanitizing our past because we're ashamed of it. We're ashamed of the things we did and the way that we lived, but I want you to understand, if you don't share some aspect of who you were before you knew Jesus, you know what your testimony sounds like? I was a pretty good person, then I met Jesus, and now I'm saved. If you're a pretty good person, then why did you need Jesus? You need a Savior to save you because you were dead. And I think when we share our testimonies, we should never minimize the fact that we were dead in our sins. Don't glorify your sin, but find that balance where you don't hide it. Maybe for some of you, yeah, there was some jail time and you're just like, I don't want anybody to know I went to jail because there's a stigma and there's a this and there's a that. Do you know how many gospel uh, followers and people that we read about in the, in, in the gospels here went to jail? Well, I was, I cheated people and I stole and I, for reading about Matthew. You know, maybe for you, it's that idea of, you know, I've, I've just... I've just divorced people for the wrong reason. I've just done it again and again. I just don't want to share that. I don't want to... You know what? If you share that, that may help somebody else who's stuck in that cycle too. You know, if you're a lady and you had an abortion and you're like, I don't ever want to bring that up. I never want to bring that up. Let me let me share this with you. What if you bringing that up actually helps another woman who is considering having an abortion? And you share something painful for the sake of glorifying it? No, no, no. For the sake of helping someone not do the same thing you did. This is why we don't forget our past. We don't forget it because we don't want to repeat it and we want to teach other people that they don't even have to go there the first time. Do you remember who you were when Jesus called you? Don't ever forget who you were. Matthew remembers. I was a tax collector. I wounded my own people. I stole from my own people. I was a wicked thief. You know, there's some pictures I want to show you now of Matthew as he was at that booth. And I would say this is kind of a turning point. The second picture that we have of Matthew. And this would be at the moment after Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus starts moving. Because Jesus is not going to say, follow me and just stand there. Jesus is saying, follow me and starts going. And it's up to the person. Jesus will never force somebody to follow him. Matthew, at this point, is at his table, at his tax collector booth, on the crossroads of the street in Capernaum, and he sees Jesus continuing to walk, and now he has a choice. And I I believe this. I believe every human being is given this opportunity in this life. Every human being is given an opportunity by God in a way that they understand to follow God. Jim! Jim! What about the person in, in darkest Africa or in Southeast Asia or in India or in China or North Korea? How in the world? There's not been a missionary there. How are they going to know about Jesus? I would have to say this. We have to remember the God that we're talking about. You know, the God that created everything. I believe the God that created everything has the ability to reach people in ways that you and I cannot even comprehend. In the nation of Iran, there's been this whole movement of dreamers. Dreamers, yes. There have been a whole group of youth, an entire generation that have been having these dreams. These dreams of God meeting them and calling them. Oh, the government's not going to allow God in. God is not intimidated by any government. No government can stop the gospel. No government can stop the gospel. And so... I believe because what we see is we see a God who reaches out to people. God will do what it takes to reach every person and give them the opportunity to follow him, everyone. And so I believe every human being is given this opportunity where you have a decision point. What you do next will affect the rest of your physical life here on earth, but more importantly will affect the rest of your eternal life that has no end. It's an important point. A decision point is an important point. And if we look at the next thing that happens, which follows the story here, Matthew chose correctly. He left him behind. He left that table behind. That table represents a lot of things. It represents security. It represents comfort. It represents, this is what I've been doing for most of my life. Yes, I'm hated, but man, I'm rich and I'm hated. I'm rich and I'm hated and I'm okay with that. I'm rich and I'm, I'm not okay with that, but I'm rich. They hate me. I hate myself for what I'm doing. I have no way out of this. And then Jesus comes to him and says, follow me and starts walking. And Matthew chooses correctly at the decision point in his life. You know, Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke gives us a little bit more insight in this. He gives us a little detail here. Luke 5, verse 28, you'll see it on the screen. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew left all of it. I'm telling you, that was the talk of the day, the week, and the month. That tax collector, that rich tax collector, do you see what he did? Do you see what he just did today? What, What happened? That Matthew, that guy, that horrible guy, he just left it. He left his booth. He just walked away. He said he was done. And he started following after Jesus. What? What are you talking about? People don't just do that. People just don't leave everything and follow after Jesus. Matthew left everything to follow after Jesus. If anyone ever tells you that following Jesus comes at no cost, that person is a liar. They're trying to give you some some lie that's like, oh, well, you can have Jesus and have all the comfort of this world as well. Lie. I'm just going to tell you it's a lie. And see, what happens is there's people who have heard that and believe that, and then when reality happens, they follow Jesus, and then there's challenges. Not everybody's excited that you're a Christian. Not everybody's on the same page as you. Sometimes even your own family doesn't get it. That person who was told the lie that when you follow Jesus, hey, it's just all, everybody, it's just all gonna be wonderful and great every day. Rainbows every day. No, when you follow Jesus, there's a couple days where it rains. And it rains hard. But here's the best part about that. Jesus is right there in front of you. You just keep following him. I just want you to know the truth. I don't want you to be told a lie that following Jesus has all the ease. You can have every comfort of this world and follow Jesus. No, there's times where you have to choose. And you know, the comforts of this world and what that table represents, at most, at most, I'm not saying that money isn't a a fun thing to have and and it gives you freedom. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying, though. The furthest money will ever get you is your short life. That's it. So you're going to invest all into your short life. Some of you are halfway past it already. Some of you are halfway past it and you don't realize it because you're averaging 80, but you're going to go be in eternity in one place or the other at the age of 25. 25. You're maybe planning, oh, I'm I'm young now. I'm young. I'm in my early 20s. And so I've got I've got at least the next, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80. Great, I've got like three quarters of my life left. Not unless you die when you're 25. Are you investing your life in a table like Matthew's tax collector table that has stuff, but the most it will ever last you is your short life. When Jesus is calling you and saying, follow me and that journey, he will take you and it will lead to a life that lasts forever. And in eternity, you will never look back on this life and go, man, I wish I had more stuff on earth. I really do. I really wish I had a little bit more money. I really wish I went on, you know, a few more vacations. I'm sorry, you're in heaven where everything is perfect in the presence of Jesus. Jesus. I think if we have that heavenly mindset when we consider life here, we have a light touch on the things of the world. And we just go, hey, if I have stuff, it's great. And if I don't, if it came and it went, it went. It's just stuff. Don't invest all of your life in something that will only last as short as your life. Please take that to heart. I want to share this story with you. This story is a story from the 1800s. In the 1800s, India was spiritually dark. Hinduism was rampant throughout uh, India. And Hinduism is um, a religion that oppresses people. As an Indian, I can tell you that firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen what it does to people generationally, where they're convinced to waste their one life that they're given. You just stay in your caste system. You stay at that lower level. Don't ever think you're ever going to become anything greater than what you are. And then they die believing that lie. And it was the only life that you have. There, had been told a lie that if you're good in that lower caste that you're at, maybe you'll reincarnate at a greater level or at a, at an, you know, at a higher level of the caste system. Well Jim, hold on. The caste system, wasn't that abolished? Wasn't that legally abolished? Yes, legally abolished. But if you go to India today, it is practically in practice more now than ever before. It's just for countries like America and other, you know, Western countries. Oh yeah, we've abolished it. And then we just go, oh good, oh good, you've gotten further than where you're at. Meanwhile, how it actually operates, it still works that way. People don't marry outside of their caste. People take jobs within their caste because they're told you will never be better than this. You are in this position. Well, imagine the 1800s where Hinduism is throughout India. It's running rampant. And people are oppressed. And so the gospel of Jesus has not come to India in any large manner. So then missionaries came from England and Australia and the United States. And these missionaries were being killed by the dozens. They would show up. They would love these Indian people. They would get killed. I mean, killed like we're going to cut your head off and we're going to have you as an example. And what would happen? That's good. It's going to scare them away. They're going to stay away. What happens? We can't kill these Christians. They just keep coming. And they just kept coming and they just kept coming and many just kept giving their lives for Jesus and just kept giving their lives for Jesus. Why? So people in spiritual darkness would have a chance to know the true and living God. In 1880, a missionary came to this one village in Northern India. It's an area called Assam. And when I was a teenager, I went there. It's right near the border of India and China. And the people that live there look half Indian and half Chinese. And it's kind of a fascinating place. But in the 1880s, there was a stronghold of Hinduism that, lit, that was there. And this husband and wife, this family, they decided that they wanted to follow Jesus. They heard the truth of the gospel. They believed upon Jesus. And so this husband and wife and their, true, and their two children, they professed their faith and they were baptized. Yesterday, people got baptized, but there was no military force that showed up at the Kent home to arrest or kill the people getting baptized. But you need to know this, in portions of our world today, to be a Christian and to be baptized, which is a public thing, that could cost you your life. And for this husband and this wife and their two children, the village leaders heard about their conversion to Christianity and their baptism, and they wanted to make an example out of the husband. So they arrested the whole family. And they had the wife and the children tied up, and they told the father, you renounce Jesus. You renounce him or you're going to see your wife and your children murdered. The husband refused to denounce Jesus. And his two children were executed by archers before his eyes. He was given one more chance. Renounce Jesus and your wife at least will live. The man refused again and his wife was similarly struck down. And they told him, they said, Refuse Jesus. And you yourself at least can have your life. You can get remarried and maybe have another chance. You deny Jesus. And the man refused. And he followed his family into glory. Now, this story that was happening, witnesses that were there in that village in northern India, recall the man and what he was saying as he was told. Deny Jesus. Deny Jesus. The man when asked to deny Jesus or his kids would be shot through with arrows, he said, quote, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. And then after seeing his children killed before his eyes, he said this, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And then being told to deny Jesus or your wife will be killed. He didn't. And his wife shot through with arrows. He said, quote, There is no one here to go with me. Still, I will follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I wonder when the first time you heard the song I've decided Jesus was. Because this is the origin of that song. In that village... This missionary comes in the 1880s and he hears this story that everyone is telling them. Why is this story so amazing? Because this man and his wife and his children, they would not deny Jesus and they were going to stand to death because they realized this life is not what it's all about. There is a life to come that lasts forever. And so when this missionary came in the 1880s to that village in northern India, an entire revival had broken out in that village including with the people who murdered that man, his wife, and their kids. Those people came to know Jesus because they had never seen such love and dedication like that in their lives. That man, that missionary who came and heard that story, he passed that on to an Indian evangelist. That Indian evangelist wrote an Indian hymn about it. And that Indian hymn was, I have decided to follow Jesus to Indian music, and it was like the first known hymn in Indian Christian churches. It is still sung to this day in India. It is like their bedrock song that they sing. And then a man, as American missionaries came back to the United States from India, they brought that song with them. They shared it with a Canadian songwriter. His name was George Beverly Shea. And he was a part of the Billy Graham Ministry and Crusades, and it became a song that was sung during the Billy Graham Crusades. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I think it's important for us to understand where the things we sing come from and to understand that our faith has a depth. It's not this cotton candy, fluffy, I want to feel good. Oh, how do I feel? Oh, I have to sacrifice? Yeah, you're going to have to sacrifice. Following Jesus always involves sacrifice. Will your sacrifice require your life? No, probably not. It might, but probably not. But the point in this is that you are willing to give everything to Jesus, including your life. If we can show that verse again, Luke 5:28. At a decision point, so proud of Matthew, he chose correctly. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So then Matthew at this point, it's the talk of the area. All the other tax collectors are like, why and who, nobody leaves it. Like you die or somebody kills you in some dark alley because they hate you. But nobody just leaves being a tax collector for the sake of being, a ta- you know, not wanting to be a tax collector. Why did Matthew do it? So I'm sure Matthew got all these questions and Matthew just, I'm sure, said something along the lines of, I'm following Jesus now. You're following Jesus? Wait, who's this Jesus? And so Matthew, because he's rich, because he has Uh, no doubt a large house, he threw a great feast for Jesus. And who did he invite? All these people who are asking questions, wondering, why in the world would you change, Matthew? You know what? Why don't you come to my house? I'm going to hold a party for Jesus and I want you to, you can even ask him. He'll be there. You can ask him all your questions. And so the gospel of Luke chapter 529 says this, And Levi, Matthew, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Look at this. What a, um odd group of people that would be all here together. And it would seem that the friends that Matthew had were people that were like him, other despised people, other tax collectors. They all congregated together. And I would say this, I think Matthew also had the kind of friends that you can buy. Because he was rich and because people who, you know, had their free will to be his friend would be like, I don't want to be your friend. You're a horrible person. He had to kind of buy friends. Hey, come, I'm having another party. Come over to my house. And here, well, here, the food, it'll be on me. You just come, you just come. And so kind of buying friendships. So these are the kind of people that are at Matthew's house and Jesus. And everybody's intrigued by this Jesus that would make Matthew walk away from a lucrative job. Well, verse number 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, so he's making himself at home, in Matthew's home, amongst sinners, God forbid, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying there's nothing wrong with you being around people that are sinners. And I want to show you that this is what you should do. Now, I think there's a picture too that we've got. And the type of seating, they wouldn't have been sitting upright in chairs. That's not the way they would. They would have been laying down on the ground reclining. But for the sake of this, and what I really love about this picture is the look on the uh, um, representation of Jesus at the end of the table there. It's a smile. It's a tell me your story. What's going on? He's allowing people to handle him, touch him, talk to him. Jesus is a king who is not afraid to be around sinners. He's a king who loves people. Wait, but these are horrible people. Jesus loves horrible people because he loves me and he loves you. If you're like, well, I just got offended by that last thing. Well, be careful because some other people are going to get offended in just a moment here and you don't want to associate with them. Verse 11, here are the other people. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, because they didn't have the guts to talk to Jesus, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And just to help us out, we have a dramatic picture of men that would just be like, can you believe this man? Why would he be eating with tax collectors and sinners? See, this is what happens when you think you're better than people. Eventually, it'll come out. Eventually, your superiority, and it's a false superiority, that you believe you're better than others, it will come out. But again, these guys didn't have the guts to talk to Jesus. So they're starting to talk to his disciples and this won't be the first time that the Pharisees accused Jesus of of dining with sinners and dining with tax collectors. We actually see this multiple times because it happened multiple times. This wasn't a one-time thing. In Matthew 11:19, 19, um, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him. These are the Pharisees. They said, look at him, look at Jesus, a glutton and a drunkard. First of all, that those two are wrong. Because both of those are sins. Being a glutton and being a drunkard are sin. Jesus is not anyone, who, he hasn't ever sinned. So that's a lie. Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard. So they're falsely accusing him. But look what they accuse him of next a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is true. Yes, that one's true. The first one's a lie. He's not a glutton or a drunkard. But yes, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, you know, it's almost like tax collectors were so bad they had their own category because you couldn't just go, you know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners because tax collectors were really bad. I don't know where you stand. I don't know if you're that person. It's like, you don't know, though, my past. You don't know my, you don't know my. Well, Matthew, I think, is a guy that has a past like that. And Jesus knows Matthew's past. And here's the best part. Jesus knows Matthew's future. Jesus knows your future too. You know that when Jesus calls you, I would encourage you strongly to follow him. Leave whatever things that you're investing your life in that will only last this short life. And now here's the thing. Is God going to ask that you give him, that all those things suddenly disappear? No, some of those things you still have in your life. It, apparently Matthew still had his house. It's not that you suddenly physically lose all the stuff. It's that in your heart, which is the most important thing, you're willing to let go of everything including your own life, for Jesus' sake. That's it. It's a hard issue. Well, so these Pharisees, they got an issue with Jesus. They're calling him a friend of sinners. They mean it as an insult, but you know what? Jesus takes it as a title of pride. You're right. I am a friend of sinners. You're absolutely right. And you know what? It's okay if his followers, meaning you and I, Christian, if you are known as a friend of sinners. Now, here is something that I want to make very clear. Jesus loves everyone. Everyone. Jesus never endorses the sin of anyone. He loves everyone. He never endorses the sin of anyone. And see, I think that's where sometimes Christians can tangle. Like, how can I hang around sinners if they're doing things? And like, I, I mean, then am I going to do those things? Or am I going to like say what you're doing is okay? No. And here's the thing. While Jesus was there with those tax collectors and with the people that were there, the friends of Matthew, if they asked Jesus a question like, well, Jesus, what do you think about this thing that I'm doing? Or, or what do you think about, you know, when I use unmeasured scales or unbalanced scales? You know what Jesus would have done? Jesus would have been like, well... I don't want to hurt your feelings, you know, and uh, I want to be socially acceptable to you. And uh, I don't want to offend you. Jesus would have just said, I love you. And that's a sin. That's what you and I as followers of his are called to do. I think sometimes Christians are afraid to call sin, sin. It's not socially acceptable. What will they think? Since when have you led your life based on what people think? Because I tell you, that's going to lead you the wrong way. Jesus, if he was ever asked about whether something is a sin or not, Jesus would clearly go, that's a sin or that's not a sin. But Jesus isn't there to point out all their sins. You know what Jesus uses first with sinners? He loves them. He loves them. He just goes, I love you. I want to hang out with you. I want to learn about you. I want to know what's going on. And then if things are happening, Jesus will never partake in sin. So, oh wait, what if some of them were drinking or what if some of them were doing? I can tell you this, Jesus wouldn't have been. So he has the ability to be around them and what they're doing, but it doesn't draw him into sin, yes. Now for some people, if you're around certain types of people and certain, if you're, well, if you're an alcoholic, oh, you know what? Jesus was a friend of sinners. So man, they're just throwing a kegger over there and I'm just going to go hang out with them because I want to be their friend. Don't you do that. Here's why. Because for you, that temptation is too great. You won't be, you're going to, you're going to fall and crash hard. There are certain Arenas in life where you can be called to go to, where that thing won't tempt you. It won't be something that you personally struggle with and you will actually be able to minister to people that are stranded in that sin. What do you do? You love those people just like Jesus would. And do you condone sin? You never condone sin. Well, how do I know what sin is and what sin isn't? It's really awesome. God wrote a book and he tells us. And it doesn't matter what the, the trend is in 2018. That doesn't change what God says is right or wrong. I love how Jesus shows us the balance. And how does he show it to us? By doing it. He does it. He loves sinners. Now, those Pharisees that, remember, again, gutless, spineless, wouldn't talk to Jesus. <laughs> they talk to his disciples, try to stir them all up, get them all confused. I love it. Jesus has perfect hearing, too. He heard them. He heard them. And what does Jesus say? Verse 12. But when he heard it, when Jesus heard those Pharisees, he said, almost like he talks over everybody else at this party, "Uh, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. See, the other thing with good speakers in their time, they were witty and they had fast comebacks. This was a fast comeback. Because first of all, the Pharisees didn't think Jesus was listening. And second, Jesus just absolutely destroys them with this statement. What do you mean, Jim? What is this statement? Uh, those that are well have no need for a physician, but those that are sick. Think about this. Doctors get asked lots of questions. But I'm pretty sure a doctor isn't ever asked this question. Here's the question. Doctor, why do you always hang around sick people? Well, um, uh, I'm a doctor. Doctors, of course doctors would be around sick people because those are the people that I serve. I don't serve healthy people. And that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, Why are you so surprised that I would be around people who are in need? I'm around here because people who are sick, those are the ones that need a doctor. And I'm Dr. Jesus. I'm King Jesus. And I'm here amongst people who admit that they're sick. Unlike you Pharisees who lie and you say that you're okay when really you're dying. Jesus absolutely destroys them with this phrase. And... Mark gives us even one more line, if you would look on your screen here. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, this we've seen before, same story, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And Mark gives us a little bit more, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, if you call yourself a Christian, that means you have a savior who's Jesus, who saved you from what? He saved you from your sin. If you go, well, I'm not that bad of a person, but I'm a Christian. I'm sorry. What did Jesus save you from? If you weren't that bad of a person, then you didn't need saving. But if you were dead, you needed saving. So are you dead or are you not dead? And Jesus doesn't allow a person to have pride in their life and accept him. You can't have pride and accept Jesus at the same time. That's why the Pharisees wouldn't accept Jesus. They wouldn't let their pride down. They wouldn't admit that they were okay. I mean, that they weren't okay. Okay. Think about this picture. Think about the picture of in front of a doctor's office and there's a person who's suffering from something that is curable. In fact, the medicine is, is available by a doctor's prescription only. And there's a doctor inside the office looking outside his window with medication in hand. And there's a person on the sidewalk suffering from this curable illness. If it's not cured, they will die from it. I ask you, isn't it foolish for that person to be standing on the sidewalk looking at the doctor through the window, holding the medication the doctor is, and going, oh, I'm good, I'm good, and the doctor's going, you need this. And for that person on the sidewalk going, no, I'm, (coughs) I'm fine, I'm good, (coughs) I'm, I'm really good, my life is good, I'm a pretty good, (coughs) I'm a pretty good person, I don't, (coughs) that's everybody that's not a believer. I need you to have a picture of it. Jesus is calling to them. As long as pride keeps you from walk, humbling yourself and walking into the doctor's office and going, I'm sick. I'm sick with sin and I need the cure and I know you're the only one that has the cure. Unless a person comes to the doctor, the only doctor that has the only medication that can cure sin, that person will die in their sins. And the tragedy of it, it is it's purely treatable. It is a treatable illness. Jesus will not stop offering the cure. Jesus himself is the cure. He died on a cross for people. So this is what I love about Jesus now as we're coming to the end of the story here. Jesus gives these Pharisees, these prideful men, he gives them a homework assignment. A homework assignment? Yes. I love it. Jesus gives out homework. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. Here's some homework for you guys. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus comments, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, go, um, go learn, oh, so that, this is actually in your, in your text, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So, so Jesus gives them homework, the Pharisees, who should know where that, that verse comes from in the Bible. And Jesus said, go figure out what that actually means and maybe then you Pharisees will understand what I'm doing here right now. Now you may wonder, where was the homework from? What verse in the Bible was Jesus talking about? Hosea 6.6, 6, Old Testament, it's on your screen. And this is God speaking to his children. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What does this mean? This means that there were people that were saying, you know what? I'm not going to be merciful and love people. Instead, I'm just going to throw an extra 20 in the offering plate. You know what I'm going to do? It's like I'm going to buy God off. I'm going to do. I'm going to volunteer and do a lot of good things. I'm going to. I'm going to um, maybe um, dig some wells for people where they have no fresh water. I'm going to do all these good works, but I, and that's going to kind of allow me to be unmerciful and unloving to certain people that I think don't deserve it. That's what God called his people on in Hosea. He said, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. In other words, God's saying, don't try to buy me off. Don't try to buy me off by paying me or giving me things. I own everything anyway. Jesus says, I desire rather than burnt offerings. I desire your mercy. I desire your love. Do you realize what Jesus is saying to those Pharisees? Jesus is saying, you are those guys. You are unmerciful and unloving men. You think you are superior to others. You think that because you wear your holy and righteous robes, because you pray twice a day, because you do all these holy things, you think that you're buying God off. Well, God is not bought off by anyone. God desires that your heart would be merciful to everyone. Could you imagine what our country would be like if people took on the attitude that God tells us we should take? What if every person in just our small country took on this attitude of, I'm no better than anyone else. And I'm called to be merciful to everyone else. What would we be like? Now, I have no illusions that everybody in our country is just going to suddenly adopt that. Because unless you follow Christ, there's no reason for you to adopt this. But here's the thing. What would happen if every Christian that lived in our country adopted this? And that we as Christians wouldn't look at other people. I mean, Humboldt County... There are a lot of people that for each of us, there could be certain people that it just, ah oh, it just is a little hard to love them. And maybe in the dark recesses of your heart someplace, there's this. And the reason it's so hard is because I know I'm a little bit better. I'm a little bit better than them. I pray that if you ever have that thought, that you would ask God to forgive you of your wrong heart immediately. Because I have to say this, I too am definitely um, able to do that. And I'm ashamed to say that, but if we're going to be honest here, we are. And if anybody here says they've never done that, then you're not believable. I'm sorry. So be real. If you have a pharisaical heart when it comes to people, and you're just like, they deserve that. They're, they're beyond God's reach. They're beyond God's mercy. Uh, stop lying. They're not. Pray a different prayer. Pray, God, let my heart be as large and as open and as loving as yours is. And at the same time, go, God, let me share truth with people who are stranded in sin, not condoning their sin, but loving them even through it So and being an example for them so that they might see that there's a way out of it. Now, as we close this message, this pastor would like to share an assumption with you. An assumption, yes. I want to make it so clear this is an assumption. But I'm going to show you my homework. Here's my homework. I believe that Matthew came from a God-fearing family. He's a tax collector. What would make you think he came from a God-fearing family with him just being a tax collector? Well, remember his names. His Hebrew name was Levi. That's one of the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament. That was part of the priestly tribe. So his family named him Levi, which would tell me there's some association. there. He must have had some upbringing in the ways of God. Not only that, the name Matthew, it's the Greek name Matthew there. Matthew means the gift of God. Wait a second. So his parents, you know, giving him two names here, kind of the name that he's known with the Romans and the name that he's known within his family. Both of them, Levi, a priestly name, and then Matthew, a gift of God. It, It seems as if he came from some upbringing that he knew what the truth was. In fact, here's another reason why I'm making this assumption. Matthew, of all the gospel writers, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, and John put together. If you took all the Old Testament quotes in Mark, Luke, and John, they don't equal the 99 quotes of the Old Testament that Matthew uses in his gospel. This boy knows the Old Testament. How does he know the Old Testament? He quotes from the law, the prophets, and the history. How does Matthew know all this? Because I believe he was raised knowing it. And as we're thinking about this here, I want you to know if you're the parent of a prodigal, we have the parable of the prodigal son, right? And we, we, we get hope from that, that the prodigal son will find himself in the mire and the muck feeding pigs and remember that there's a home that he can go back to. But how about this? How about I p- propose this to you, that Matthew is an actual prodigal. That Matthew was actually raised in a home that taught about the goodness of God. And that Matthew, like so many people then and even now, decided I could follow God's ways or I could go after the money. And he went after the money. And, and here's the danger about us going after some of the things of our own flesh. Here's the danger. Listen, you may actually get what you're chasing. And when you get what you're chasing, you go, is this it? Matthew was a miserable person sitting at a tax collector booth, a rich man that was so lonely. And the hole in his heart was not satisfied by what he chose to chase in his life. And he was, for him, a prodigal. He was far away from ever being reached by God. And for Matthew, it was too late for him, except that there's this awesome king that goes to people who are lost and goes to them and invites them and says, follow me. Matthew didn't even have the courage to seek out Jesus. Jesus went to him. So if you're the parent or the grandparent of a prodigal, maybe you never thought about this, but consider Matthew as a prodigal son who came back to the Lord and then wrote a gospel about the goodness of God. There's always hope. Don't you ever lose hope. So Jesus is calling. And this morning, there's no way that we're going through this message and Jesus isn't calling you. There's no way that Jesus isn't calling you. The question is, you have that decision moment that point where you're standing at the table and you have to decide whether you'll follow Jesus or whether you'll stay at the same table where you've, that you've made. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and as they do, i just got ask if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes. So as you're here this morning, uh, I don't think the truth was vague. I think it was pretty clear. And it being clear... It doesn't force you to do anything. It invites you. The truth always invites. Never forces. Jesus never forces you to do anything. But once again, Jesus makes an invitation to you. It's a personal invitation. He's calling you by name. He's calling you to follow Him. Do you hear His voice? Will you respond to His call? If you would like to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, like Matthew did, You're willing to leave everything else behind to follow Him. You realize all the stuff that in this world is not going to mean anything without Jesus. If that's where you're at, the struggles you're having, the challenges that you're having, you need to admit you're sick. Sick with sin. You need to admit that you need somebody that can save you. Somebody greater than you. You have to humble yourself. And if you find yourself in that place this morning... Oh, I have to tell you, Jesus never turns away somebody who comes to Him and asks Him for help. If you'd like to receive Jesus into your heart, pray a prayer like this to the Lord. He hears you. He knows you. He's always known you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm sick with sin. I'm stranded in my sin. I'm not happy where I'm at. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you took all of my sin on the cross. Jesus, I believe you're God's son and that you died and you rose again. Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins. And give me the power to walk in Your ways from this day forward. Jesus, help me to help other people who are stuck in sin too. I love You, Jesus. Thank You for making me a Christian. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you've prayed that prayer to ask Jesus Christ into your heart, I won't embarrass you, but would you just raise your hand so I could... I pray for you. I see your hand and your hand. I see your hand and your hand. I see your hand. Is there anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. You may put your hands down. Father, you're moving in the hearts of people for each one of these people as they've raised their hand, as they acknowledge their need for you. No turning back, no turning back. They can't do it in their own strength, so they need your power. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fall afresh upon them, that you would give them power that they don't have, your power to walk in your ways for the rest of their lives. And God, we pray you use them to be a light, that they wouldn't hide their past, but their past would be part of their testimony as they tell people and people realize that Jesus loves even them. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting us and calling us. Thank you for being our friend, the friend of sinners. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Listen, if you ask the Lord into your heart, don't leave here without telling somebody. Don't leave here without telling somebody. Um, There'll be a few people that will be standing over there. We'd love to pray with you. Um, We've got service this Wednesday. God bless you. Let your light shine because there's a community of people who are sick that need to know who Jesus is.